Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bunny Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer, Randy Kim. I hope that you are staying safe and well during this COVID-19 crisis. For season two, we are exploring the theme 1975, which is the 45-year anniversary of the end of the Vietnam-Laos Civil War and also the beginning of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. For this week's season two, episode 11 of the podcast, Cambodian-American author Sambat Mia joins in as my guest. She's a 1.5 generation Cambodian-American who grew up in the Chicago Uptown neighborhood. She is the author of two books, The Governor's Daughter and The Immortal Seeds. I've known Sambath for several years now when we first connected after she released her book, The Governor's Daughter. We chatted about her upbringing in Uptown and delved deep into her complicated relationship with her parents. Sambath shares her experience writing her two books and what she hopes to inspire for other fellow Southeast Asian American writers. Please check out this episode, and after you do, please pick up a copy of one of her books, which is available now. Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnam-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle or on their Facebook page. Hello, everyone. This is Randy, your host from the Bunry Chronicles podcast. So I am joined tonight with uh, a special friend of mine. Her name is Sambath Mies. Uh, how are you today, Sambath? I am fine. How are you, Randy? Well, I feel wonderful right now, and I'm so uh, thankful to be talking with you. And there's going to be so much that we'll, we will be covering uh, today. And so I want to start out by... Um, talking about how we met, I got to say, it has to be somewhere in 2016. I, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe it's around that time because I was just getting involved with the Cambodian community um, during that time. And I don't know who introduced uh, me to you, but I at that time, I had heard that you uh, were a writer. You had just published your first book, The Governor's Daughter, and I thought it was really amazing and that you were local, that you were around uh, in the Chicagoland area. So I was very intrigued personally about, uh, about your writing. And uh, for me, I see myself as a person who likes to write, but more casually. I haven't done anything that's been you know, very serious as far as book writing is concerned, but uh, I've always been drawn to uh, Southeast Asian writers such as Ocean Vuong, uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen, uh, Long Ung, um, to name a few. So I remembered uh, we connected and we talked on the phone at length and we had talked about our parents' experiences, specifically with our dad and our relationship with them. And we bonded immediately because of the struggles that we shared uh, from, a, uh, from a child to father type relationship. Also, uh, I think like right afterwards, you had asked me to do, be a part of a video uh, as part of your uh, keynote speech uh, for the Cambodian Association of Illinois. You were a keynote speaker. So 
I thought that was really awesome. And mm -hmm. very thankful that you gave me the opportunity to participate in that video as part of your uh, keynote speech. So yeah, here we are a couple of years later and you know, you've continued to, uh, to write and you continue to uh, shine a light in our own community through your writing and through your uh, community presence. So thank you so much, Sambath. Oh, thank you. Thank you, yeah. Randy, for inviting me um, to be one of your guests. Um, uh, your podcast is becoming very popular. Really? And, um, you think so? Yeah, <laughs> I, I believe so. You're going somewhere with uh -huh. this. Um, and plus, you got some big names on there. Um, well, I don't think like, it's always about the big names, to be honest with you. It's about people with well, that helps, stories. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's not why you know I do these things. It's I think I think um, being able to talk to people who have something to say and something to share, right. and and the personalities that I have on, you know, those personalities are so important to our community as a whole because they're brave, they're courageous and wanting to share their stories, right? And, mm -hmm. and I get drawn to people who are doing important work for the community and their families and, uh, and for themselves and to really uplift um, the history and the, that they're creating uh, for our collective API history here. So I'm very gr grateful to have uh, the kind of conversations I've been having so far, and I'm looking forward to having that with you tonight. So I was wondering if you can uh, quickly uh, introduce yourself. Sure. So my name is Sambat Mia. That's how you pronounce it in Khmer. Um, I, my parents call me Sra. Um, that's my nickname. That's the name that my uh, mom wanted to give to me because um, she, I don't know if I told you this story. I, I, told, I, I think I told the girls about this, but I, I don't know if I had mentioned this to you. But I got my name, my nickname, from um, a novel um, that my mom read. Um, and my dad didn't like it because my, my dad thought she's crazy, you know, having all these um, fantasies um, from, um, from novels that she read. But, um, and so my, um, my grand aunt, which, uh, who was my um, mom's aunt, um, her biological aunt, meaning um, she was her mom's sister, biological sister. So she, so she named me Simbat just to make fun of me because during that time um in the 70s there there were these two brothers um um they were in the theater you know how um arts theater um they're not respectable um you know career or um jobs um as you know according to the um the old people um so the name, uh, his name was Sambat, Sambat, and I think his partner, partner's name is, uh, was Sambo. So she was gonna, she's, she called me Sambat and she was gonna name my sister Sambo, oh. Sambat Sambo. Um, <laughs> Sambat Sambo, it almost Sambat Sambo. sounds like. Yeah, Sambat Sambo, uh, Tikhol <laughs> is um, the rhyme that they would use to make fun of that person. But anyway, my, my dad had a different idea. He, he, he thought that it was a nice name. So, and plus he wanted um, 
um, because the name Zimbat has a very strong meaning. And plus our last name is Mias. So Mias is gold or, um, and the name Zimbat means wealth. It could be um, um, mental wealth. It could be, you know, like um, monetary wealth and, or yeah, wealth, wealth of knowledge, um, something like that. So that's how I got my name Zimbat. But my mom, adamant still calls me Sarah on the side so in on my eyes it's my name is Sambat and uh personally at home they call me um Sarah but anyway um so I lived in Cambodia for um six years until we escaped when um escaped from Cambodia um when the Vietnamese invaded um Cambodia the Vietnamese um uh, army um, who originally were uh, armies um, soldiers uh, who originally were um, al allies of um, Bolbo the Khmer Rouge but um, due to skirmishes and political infighting and whatnot um, they become um, enemy and so we took that time to um, escape to the refugee camps and we went through um, the paths that um, people before us who escape um, to the refugee camp. So we follow that path and found our way to the refugee camps. And then um, it was on the border um, between Thailand and Cambodia. So when, um, when the Khmer Rouge uh, or the Thai soldiers were shooting at each other. Um, that's when the um, United Nations organizations, UNICEF and stuff, um, moved us further into Thailand. And that's how we got transported mm -hmm. into our first camp in Thailand. And from there on, um, we lived, uh, we moved around from camp to camp, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if um, you experienced that, but. Um, most of us um, experienced that. Uh, so we, after that, um, we, my, my dad wrote, um, wrote uh, lots of uh, letters to any countries, first world countries, third world, I mean, any peaceful countries to sponsor us to um, their country. Mm. And we received, uh, we received three sponsorships, one to New Zealand, one to Chicago, one wow. to Washington, D.C. We only knew about um, um, the other two after we, you know, accepted the Chicago one. Wow. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, imagine, your life, imagine your life being in New Zealand all of a sudden. Yeah. I know. Living in New Zealand. I wonder my, what that would be like. My grandfather had a choice between America or Australia, and I secretly wanted Australia. Well, I don't, I don't secretly want Australia. I really wanted to live in Australia because I've been there, and I'm like, damn, I would have loved to have made my life there. But obviously, I don't think um, my, my parents met in America, so I would not have been born, but I would have been born as somebody else, obviously. So, Right. Yeah. What could have been? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, of course, we were, um, we were dumped uh, in Uptown Chicago, Uptown Chicago during that time in the 1980s uh, consisted of um, 
dilapidated buildings. There were mostly mostly minorities, uh, drug addicts. Mm. Um, it, it was a dangerous time, but well, you can't venture out alone at night. But it was, you know, livable. So my dad um, registered me for school. I attended Stockton Middle School. And we live on Beacon Street, so I would walk from my building all the way to the other end. Um, so basically, we were, our street beacon was sandwiched between Graceland um, Cemetery mm -hmm. and another cemetery, which I forgot the name. It's Jewish Cemetery. It's on Lawrence. You remember yes, the name of it? I do. I can't remember the name off of it, but I know it's like on Lawrence and Clark Street. Right. So I think I, I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. Mm. We lived there. Um, then... Well, I I went to school in Stockton. Of course, being a person not speaking a word of English, um, it was hard to communicate. And I got bullied a lot. I got beat up by boys mm -hmm. mostly and made, a, made fun of. I was called Ching Chong. Um, mm. They would pull the kids, my bullies would, um, I call them my bullies. Uh, they um, would pull their eyes up in the tight, uh, in a slanty, very tight in yeah, a very slanty and, way yeah, yeah. And, and they would make fun and they would um, speak to me in a tone uh, as if they were speaking to me in my language you know um, whatever um, which they can't funny do. noises yes. whatever noises they were making so yeah. my life was basically hell um, not a word of English um, getting beat up um you know what's also I, kind I of, hated. you know what's also kind of funny when you bring up the slanty eye gesture, and I've mentioned this uh, a few times during, uh, in some of my other episodes, some of the kids would do that to me. Yet my eyes were bigger than theirs, which I thought was hilarious to me. And my <laughs> eyes are not um, small, and I thought it was just so weird what the kids tried to associate me as, even though I did not have those features. I thought it was so oddly ironic um how old were you when you came to uh, the u.s so i left cambodia when i was six years old and we were displaced in the refugee camp for two years um so i was eight years old by the time we arrived in chicago on september um, 1981 so they put me in the third grade and uh it, it was hard mm. third grade not a word of english third grade is by then you should be able to have you know basic writing um, skills and writing and reading skills um but me i was like a baby learning learning how to speak learn uh, i should have you know they well, they didn't know what to do with me because mm -hmm. d during that time, they were not prepared for um, these newcomers. But, uh, you know, we struggle. We struggle. And 
fortunately, my dad was able to buy a TV. Mm. That's when my sister and I were able to learn the alphabets from Sesame Street and Mr. Roger. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, how so, I learned my that's how I learned my ABCs and it's how I learned compassion and love through Mr. Rogers, right? Yeah, I I I'm so thankful for him and thankful for Sesame Street. That's how we learn our um, Fun alphabets. public television. Fun <laughs> yeah. public television people. That's how we learn our alphabets and our um numbers. Of course, um, you pick up negative words uh, faster, like mm -hmm. cursing. Uh, so when the bullies uh, were beating me up, even during class, throwing spitballs at me, you know, they would take a straw, they would chew on paper and put paper in the straws <clears throat> and then blow it in my face or in my hair. Oh my and goodness. I was not the type to back down, remember, um, I came from a Khmer Rouge. Um, I, 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 I know how to defend myself. So I would fight back, even though the language barrier is there. <laughs> I would, you know, do whatever hand gesture, screaming, whether it's in Khmer <laughs> or whatever little English I knew. And the teacher would yank me uh, because you know how those kids, when they um, heckle you or harass you, they would be quiet about it and then I would react and they would snicker. So of course <clears throat> the teacher yanked me to tell me to sit down, to be quiet. And I was so mad that he didn't see those other kids um, harassing me. Mm. So um, I was so mad. Uh, by then I learned a few languages a few words, not a few words, a few words, and one of them was, fuck you. <laughs> wow. And um, I got yanked out of class and sent to the principal office, and they called my father in to, um, to tell me that I was a troublemaker, and I was, mm -hmm. oh, I didn't tell you that I spit before I said, fuck you. I, I spit at the teacher. I'm sorry. Oh, you did? Yeah, uh, um, that's when I got, um, yeah. Oh my goodness. Got yanked out of class. So I'm sorry. I just remember that we're not supposed to be swearing. Or oh, like, no, no, it's <laughs> fine. It is fine. This is an adult show. Okay, okay. So that's it. I won't say any more, you know, vulgar um, words. But I think that it also gives you the gravity of what was going through your mind as a third grader not knowing English because I as a person who uh, was born in the US I was mute I was terrified to speak and I couldn't speak English uh, growing up uh, when I started kindergarten and it was easy for me to retreat into my own isolation right and a lot of us who grew up with parents uh, as refugees and being born in the United States uh, only a few years apart uh, from arrival, it is terrifying because your parents don't have a clue of what's going on. They don't know how to communicate with their teachers, with, with our teachers, I should say. And you shared uh, things that are so profound, dealing with the racism at an early age, realizing mm -hmm. that you do not belong because of who, 
because of how you look like, your skin color, your body features, and the inability to speak like them. So that considered, all of this considered you as a threat. And it presents the shame of who we are of our own families, right? Because we want to fit in so bad, be accepted by our peers, yet um, we get shame for things that we can't control. So did you sense, did you have a feeling of resentment towards your family and also of how you looked like um, in the years growing up? No, um, here's the thing. I was always a loner, even in Cam um, Cambodia. I, I don't remember much, but based on what my parents told me, that I don't like to associate with other kids. Like I would always be alone, mm -hmm. even so. Even at the refugee camp, I was alone too. I always go to places by myself. I would um, go to attend um, theater shows. They would have, you know, performing arts. Um, those um, artists who survived the killing fields. Mm -hmm. They would put on um, shows to, um, to I guess to divert their minds from the abuses whether by um, Thai soldiers. Mm. You remember, uh, I, I don't know if you recall the rapes, the abuse, the robbery and yes. all that. Um, so um, to get away from these depressing things, they would put on shows. They would put on um, Khmer Ballet, Robam. Mm. Yeah, so I would go and um, watch these things. I guess that's how I got into liking the theater is from then on. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I would carry my baby sister. She was one at the time, would carry her and go stand there watching with my little um, skirt um, and with no shirt on watching. Um, so you can imagine. Uh, yeah. So back to uptown Chicago. I have fond memories. And by the way, I am writing about um, my experience of um, coming of age in uptown Chicago. So I have finished mm. three chapters. I'm working on that. Because um, even though like the town was I, I guess they call it blight town, you know, blight um, as in, you know, um, um, dilapidated and the neighborhood wasn't, wasn't great, wasn't good. And there are a lot of um, drugs and gangs in certain parts of uptown. But I do have a lot of memories growing up in uptown Chicago and I want to write about that. It's like me, an uptown girl. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, living, experiencing um, a new life after having been displaced for two years and after living in fear of the Khmer Rouge mm -hmm. during the 70s. So mm -hmm. it's it's like um an ode to uptown Chicago. I don't yeah. think there's um a lot written about uptown Chicago. I I I remember reading um uh, the history about how glamorous uh, and 
economically um, um, booming. Yeah, during, during, during the Great Depression, before a Great before Depression. Before that, yeah, before, before that. Great Depression time, yeah, because you had the Uptown Theater, um, you had the Aragon, you had the Riviera Theater. Uh, two of them are still, you know, functioning. And then the Uptown Theater uh, was created in like 1922, and um, it's been closed for the past 40 years. Soon to open up, but next to it is the Green Mill Room, which is a, a known Al Capone hangout. So yeah, it had a very prominent place in Chicago's history. That whole neighborhood, and it was a whole different demographic back then, well before um, the Southeast Asian refugees uh, came in there. I think prior to it was the Native Americans. There was a, uh, a Jewish, a Latino community. I don't know the exact demographics of Uptown back then, but it, it, I think around the 70s and then moving forward, it was uh, struggling. And what we had talked about earlier, what Uptown was like back then, and it still has its moments where there's a lot of gang violence, mental health issues, and what mm -hmm. have you. But then there's also gentrification, which um, is a whole nother topic here. Um, but I want to rewind back to um, uh, during the time of the Khmer Rouge, I mean, I believe you said you were two, I believe you were two years old then mm -hmm. when it started. Uh, what do you uh, recall um, from that particular period of time or what have your parents uh, told you uh, about that particular experience and as well as your family members? I know that you've shared some things with me off, uh, off in another conversation, but I feel like this is very important to uh, to think about because you were about two years old at the time uh, when the Khmer Rouge happened in 1975. And during that particular period, uh, medicine, uh, medical treatment in general were banned. I mean, there were no resources for it. And so I wonder how did kids of that age uh, below 10 years old were able to survive uh, and and to uh, to to uh, deal with the uh, absence of their parents not being there for them because families were separated um, their parents if they were together were working day and night or um, would end up dying as a result of it so I wonder how do children like you end up surviving that. I don't know if it's something that you're able to share here, but I, I'm very curious to know if you have any thoughts on that. Okay. Yes, I do. So based on my random memories of um, that period and living under the Khmer Rouge and based on what my parents filled me in later, um, this is um, how our lives were uh, like. Um, when, let's start from when I was a toddler, that's, I remember a little bit of that. Um, so when my parents go out to work, they would put me, uh, leave me with babysitters. Mm -hmm. Babysitters consist of, um, people from the city who did not know how to, um, um, cultivate rice or do not know how to do um, hard labor work um, or out in the fields doing um, like manual labor, especially old people. Mm -hmm. So old city people would be assigned to babysit kids mm -hmm. because 
the parents would be out working long hours, demanding hours, however long the Khmer Rouge needed them to, um, whether it's um, digging the ditch, uh, whether it's growing corn or growing sugarcane or growing rice. Um, we were in Batambang. That's where we um, were pushed to go. So I live, um, well, during, during the daytime, I, I stay with my babysitters. And I don't remember um, much. I don't remember what I was doing. But so at nighttime, my parents would come and pick me up. And then um, the children would, would have their own cafeteria. And the parents, the adults, would have their own cafeteria too. Mm. But we live in Batambang, so they're more the I guess the Khmer Rouge were more like humane, as humane mm. as you'll ever be as a, a communist. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we got enough to eat, but for children, food it consists of rice and corn or rice and potato. There's no taste to it. There's mm. no. Mm -hmm. There's no salt. There's no, it's just bland. But my parents would, you know, save some of their food to bring it home. Mm -hmm. I, if, if they were found out, they would be um, tortured mm. or, or even killed. But mm -hmm. they snuck their food or they would go out and shoot um, birds to, to cook for me. Um, so we were assigned to have we were not allowed to have pots and pans but we were allowed to have a teapot to boil water mm. so they would hide the food in there mm. and sometimes my my parents told me that i somehow they couldn't get me to stay with the babysitter mm. i would run back home to to our hut and be by myself, like I told you earlier, wow. I'm a loner. Um, yeah, when, when I got passed around from one babysitter to another, um, I, I don't know, I, I would find my way back to my house and just be alone at, at my house. How far was it from, do, do, do you recall? I mean, I know you were much too young to remember the distance, but do you have any idea of what was told to you? I, I I have no idea. Um, I think they they live in the back. Uh, I guess I would say like a street away or a field away. So I don't think we were that far, um, based on what my parents told me, because they would say, like, sometimes um, when they get home, they would see me. They would see me, um, you know, sitting at home already. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, about um, illness and stuff, there were no doctors, no medications. If there were medications, therefore, you know, the higher up um, uh, communist soldiers for their leaders. I remember my dad um, telling me when he was really, really sick to the point of... Um, not being able to walk and my mom thought that he was gonna die and i was sick too as a baby you know whatever mm. illness malnutrition or whatever i contracted out there in the field um 
my aunt would, my mom's cousin, I should say, um, she would ask her leader. I don't know how she got the medication and we never ask, but she was able to um, get my dad um, medication for his um, his um, flu or cold mm-hmm. or what have you. So he was um, he was saved by that. But other than that, any other kind of illnesses would people would you know consult with the elders who would recommend say for instance when I was um I don't know how old I was probably three or four years old I had um chicken pox Mm. um, measles and some other like one after another and I remember um see I (laughs) I said I was gonna look this up um my mom uh what is my mom called in English it's this um herbs that we use to make the soup okay Uh, they would put that in um, a tub of water for me to bathe to so that I won't be so itchy Mm. and then um, to cool my inside that's to cool my outside to cool my inside um, they would put earthworm into this young coconut um, Mm. and then I would drink it Oh I remember, gosh. I remember seeing like, until I finished the, um, the, the juice, I <laughs> saw a worm like wiggling at the bottom of the young coconut. So I threw it out. I'm like, Bleh. but anyway, I, I survived. Um, there were many other illnesses, but my parents consulted the elders to seek whatever advice whatever experience um they had with um herbs and whatever they could collect from the jungle or the forest to um help us heal from whatever ailment that we had so that that's um that's the remedy there's no doctor no medications that's Mm -hmm. how we survived is through um, home remedies mm. and yeah and it's going to the story of my aunt mm-hmm. um, she did not like because she married young and um, of course by by the time that she got married there were no adults to advise her especially you know close relatives so she didn't know she was pregnant. She had this cramp in her stomach. To um, alleviate her cramp pain, she would take um, a hoe and use um, the opposite side to like suppress it, mm-hmm. to um, press her stomach as if that would alleviate her pain. And then as her stomach got bigger and bigger, that's when she knew she was pregnant. And mm. when, when she finally gave birth, he was, um, he was not healthy. Something was wrong with him. He mm-hmm. was constantly sick and he would, um, he would stop breathing for a while and then breathe again. The Khmer Rouge um, told her that 
he took too much of her time from working. Mm. So they forced her to bury him. Ugh. So she did, um, uh, you know, hesitantly because, you know, when you have a gun to your head, yeah. of course, you're going to, you're going to go bury um, your kid. Mm-hmm. So after she buried him, she was crying and crying, but a mother would never want to give up on her child. Mm-hmm. The next thing um, she knew, she went to um, dig him up with her bare hands, dig mm-hmm. him back up. And that's when she could, he was coughing. So she was so ecstatic to find out that he was breathing, he was alive. So oh my goodness. He, she took him to a Rishi, you know, an elder, um, to do some incantation and see if he could help to save her kid. Mm-hmm. But you know what? He survived until this day. Although he's not, you know, mentally all there, but he survived. He's a good person. He he works. Now he has a, a very smart um, little girl who he adores. He, and he has a loving wife. So thank God she went back and dug him up. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, she would be burying him alive. And who knew that her baby would still survive? Um, and just imagine, I cannot imagine uh, your aunt having to make this horrible decision with her life in danger, um, about to get executed. And to think of what a mother goes through when they're about to lose their child, do no choice of their own. And looking back you know the reason why we hear these stories and why they are very important is i don't want to focus on the miracles of what happened in the marriage but the mm-hmm. miracles of people who survived but mm-hmm. but to show the gravity of how dark and how um, traumatizing uh, that period was for survivors and what survivors had to endure they were there were many miracles that kept, mm-hmm. like a lot of these survivors had nine lives and they were about to use that nine lives up and it, it, it blows my mind and there's no there's a reason why our community of survivors still struggle with the PTSD which is lifelong and that it does get mm-hmm. passed on to um, children like us you know while mm-hmm. we may not have the full experience and knowledge of the trauma I mean, for myself, I was born uh, several years afterwards, but for you, you were born right into the middle of it, but not having much memory, but there was still trauma involved, right? And mm-hmm. and that gets deeply passed down because of how much that our parents and our grandparents had to endure uh, this viciousness of being in those labor camps and how people lost their lives and their loved ones in the process and being a witness to so many suffering. And um, I wonder how your aunt has been since 
that experience and how that has affected her. I, I know you can't speak for her on that, but I, I wonder what a mom or a parent goes through when they're about to lose their child and then realize like, my gosh, I get a second chance at this. And that doesn't always happen very often for a lot of uh, parents who lost their children along the way. And mm-hmm. including, including your parents who, you know, luckily uh, you and your uh, sister were able to survive. And it's, it blows my mind how a lot of the children during that period were able to um, still survive, especially when there was very little medical treatment, mm-hmm. if any. And given the absence of parents and the level of executions that were happening there. Yeah. Well, we were fortunate to live in Batambang, where most of the um, most of the Khmer Rouge sympathizers were educated. Mm. So. And they were former um, educators themselves. Mm. They were artists and they were uh, in one part of our town. Um, they were mostly um, Republican soldiers. Re- remember if, um, in, in other provinces or in other um, villages, they would have been executed, but they executed all the um, leaders, but they kept the lower rank soldiers. And they were able to, they, they knew, um, but, you know, um, they, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, don't ask, don't tell. It's it kind right. of like that type of um, relationship yes. type of thing. Yes. Like, so, but people were just trying to get by and meet their insane um, um, demands from the higher ups in terms of um, making quotas of mm. the goods to deliver to China in exchange for guns and um, whatnot, and other weapons. Mm. Um, so you wanted to know what life, my life was like and what, 1975 represented well i think in a sense that you shared that and thank you for uh for shedding a lot of light into your own experiences living in the camps right and and uh, i'm sorry if i had to kind of jump back into it because I, I think it all connects in a sense of what you were dealing with it also gives a frame of reference of how you were raised in america like you talk about how uh isolation was all was a, like, this theme for you uh, throughout mm-hmm. your life right yeah, um, yeah as a toddler, uh, as a kid in school, trying to get away from the bullies and trying to find your own safe space. And, and then also the fact that you saw comfort in the arts uh, as mm-hmm. an outlet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wondering what your relationship, uh, going back into uh, your young adult uh, period, uh, what your relationship was like with your parents as you got older, as you started to uh, become more assimilated in Western culture, but also dealing with uh, your parents' uh, struggles with assimilation. Okay. So in terms of, uh, you know, having um, how, how, 19, how the 70s, how the Khmer Rouge, how um, Bol Bol, how the war in Cambodia um, affected Cambodian people, Personally, I don't have a direct effect uh, because I was so young. 
of course, I saw random things that happened. I saw uh, a bloated um, woman um, out in the field. Uh, I experienced a bomb explosion. Uh, a bomb was exploded. A, not a bomb, but a grenade was thrown in our direction when when my mother and I went to look for my father, who was um, dividing up food so that mm -hmm. we can make our um, way to the city during the Vietnamese invasion. I, I remember that. I remember escaping. I remember running um, or not walking, but always on this broken bike where um, I slept a lot and I would not and my head would hit my forehead would hit the handle. Mm -hmm. I remember all that. Um, so and then the camp, the camp, I was a loner. There wasn't I, I hear stuff, but there wasn't any impact. I didn't have any direct um, threat, direct torture, direct or witnessing torture or execution like the adults had experienced. But uh, growing up in uptown Chicago, I have an indirect uh, second-handed experience or yeah, mm -hmm. through my father. It, my father and mother, they saw a lot, they experienced a lot. They had a, my mother had a very bad childhood mm. and going into the Khmer Rouge was just as worst. My dad had a great childhood. Um, so he married my mom out of compassion because she was living with an abusive aunt mm. who beat her up day in and day out. Mm. But so my father growing up in uptown Chicago, I experienced, he, he manifested his, um, I guess his trauma um, through abusive words. Mm -hmm. through anger it's the way um you know like um i don't know if you had read tanihisi quotes um between the world and me i am how not he just yeah how he described um the fear of losing your body mm. to um police officers to to um white um dreamers um he was describing how um the older folks uh, manifested their fear through you know rough voice through um you uh, through like abuse like beating your kids straighten up your kids so that they they won't have their bodies taken away from uh, by the system mm. so i see my father uh uh he was um, experiencing his trauma and he manifested through verbal abuses through uh, verbal abuses and sarcastic remarks and just, what I mean verbal abuses is that whatever I did during that time it was never never right by my father I always get yelled at I get yelled at the most mm -hmm. And his, um, like his bluntness, his sarcasm, it, it just hurt me so deeply mm. that I, I, I hated being around him. 
you know? Mm -hmm. And then, although I didn't know it at the time, but I noticed that he was losing his hair. Mm -hmm. So his, his trauma, whatever he was experiencing from back, it, it caught up with him, right? Back in, during the Khmer Rouge era, mm -hmm. it caught up with him and it's manifesting itself into, it turned him into this, this hateful person. Mm. And I remember when, when I was five or six years old, my dad loved me. My dad would mm. never raise his voice at me. But as when we come to America, when he started to lose his hair and he was complaining about his pain in his stomach, complaining about all kinds of pain, uh, He's just, he's just, he was just so hard to live with. And we fought all the time. Mind you, mm -hmm. um, you know, kids, when, when your parents yell at you or tell you what to do, you don't talk back. They do not like it when you talk back. And I talk back a lot. And mm -hmm. that's when my mom used to hit me a lot because I talk back. Mm -hmm. um, Mm. My dad, he wasn't physically abusive, but he was verbally abusive. Verbally, not as in cursing me out, but it's just degrading stuff that you and in, 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 like demeaning you and like minimizing who you are as a person. Mm, um, not really that. Like for instance, um, like when I laugh at a joke, he would say it's very unladylike you shouldn't be laughing like that or when I run and I bump into um when I bump into a furniture he would say why don't you run harder and hit that hit that desk harder maybe um you, you're not feeling the pain hard enough why don't you um, go at it faster mm. something like that it's a lot There's, of strong microaggressions yeah so he would never like curse at me he would never um they, it's, I have to like form his type of uh, verbal abuse in it, it. I have to find a way to describe it. Um, but talking about it, it's, it, it's, it, it's hard to describe because I, I don't right. have the vocabulary to describe. Um, but I think it, I think it's a, I think it's kind of like a snapshot of, uh, of the kind of relationship that you were dealing with. And, you know, like when I look back on my relationship with my dad and I think what we bonded with was, you know, my dad was also very loving um, when my brothers and I were growing up. But there were certain points that I would sense a trigger with him that was very random. He would start yelling. He would start getting verbally abusive if I didn't do something right uh, on his expectations. It was always it caught me off guard because uh, he would get verbally abusive, but at the same token, he would also be the last person to tuck me into bed and kiss me goodnight. So I felt this weird relationship with my own dad growing up that he loved me. He showed, he knew how to show love, but at the same time, his rage kept me in fear. Now, I think that when you talk about your own father, you know, to hear the sarcasm, to hear the put downs. And I had to deal with it from my own dad. And it, it like, for myself, I was a kid who was very obedient. Um, 
for a good part of time. I was also very scared of my parents, uh, mm. specifically with my dad and also with everyone in general. But I think as I grew into a te- as a teenager, I started feeling this sense of rebellion, this being fed up of being obedient. And I felt like I could never please my dad no matter how hard I tried and that his love was no longer worth it for me so I did everything I could to reject it now as you were getting older did you find yourself rejecting your dad's love on top of that um, as you were struggling to deal with his uh, his microaggressions his verbal abuse so we got along uh, after I gra- graduated college, only because this is the thing that um, that brought us together. He, his suffering, his his mental suffering, um, is eating him up to a point that he become ill. He lost his hair and his um, intestine was eroding. I, I we didn't find out until one day um, he was waiting outside. In the kitchen, he was um, squatting on our kitchen floor, waiting for me to to wake up so that I could take him to the hospital. Because mm. at that time, he lost all his hair, his mm. eyebrows, his lashes. Um, so he, he said, daughter, can you take me to the hospital? I, re- I remember he looked mm. so pathetic. Um, can you take me the hospi- uh, to the hospital? I am feeling very weak. I can't move um very much so i got dressed and rushed him to the hospital and come to find out his intestine they they never found out what happened to him he went to doctors and he went to um what do you call those uh those creek uh are you talking about like uh, which doctor? <laughs> yeah. Like, well, okay. Um, okay, that's a good way of saying. Well, it. you could like say it. You know, alternative medicine and. Okay. I think there's a politically correct word these days. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, okay. but I get what you're saying too. Like you know, going for Eastern medication, Eastern medicine. Yeah, getting acupuncture or having someone burn your um, stomach. It, it's just another way of diverting the pain and. Mm-hmm diverting one pain to another but they never when he went to the real doctor they never found out like what was wrong with him until that day when he asked me to take him to the hospital that's when they discover he was losing a lot of blood mm-hmm. that his um it, one of his intestines was eroded so they cleaned that up and they gave him antibiotic and they had to um give him um trans blood transfusion I think they used like three or four bags of um, blood transfusion. Oh my goodness. Uh, it was painful for him. Mm-hmm. But during that time, I, I thought my dad was dying and I prayed to God. I said, God, please keep, keep him alive. I, I will not, you know, talk back to him anymore. I will not be a stubborn child. I will be good from now on if you could just save his life. How long did that last? Yeah. <laughs> It lasted for a few months. Guess you had to make a deal with the <laughs> devil on that one too. It's like, yeah, oh, no. it's like, all right, I kind of failed. It's like I kind of failed here. It's just, you know, <laughs> but 
but no, so, I think it tells you like the the level of compassion and the urgency of nearly losing your father and 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 dealing with this guilt um, that you that you were having that you were wrestling with and your own turbulent relationship with him uh, prior to his illness. Mm-hmm. When when he got better, and then during this time, I was reading a lot too about the Khmer Rouge, about the killing fields, about. Uh, other people living through, I like to read um, other people's experience during um, that time. And then eh, I started to, you know, question my mom and dad about that time period, what it was like, because like I told you, I I remember random things, you know, bits and pieces here and there. And I wanted my parents to give me the full picture they wouldn't my mom especially she would suppress all the bad memories mm-hmm. whether it's her childhood whether it was during the Khmer Rouge era she would suppress it so far so deep that I don't think she can recall anything or I don't think she remembers anything um not until not until like I um not until I pushed my dad and I even said to him, look, uh, there's, there, there are people writing about the Khmer Rouge era and they said that uh, Yuan is a derogatory word and he was so livid to hear that I, I said that to him. He goes, what? Who said that? Well, I said, well, there's this, woman, um, Luong Ung, she said, Yuan is a derogatory word. And she also said, Bok and Mai are derogatory words. And then she goes, you, that's not true. What do you think, what was the interpretation of what Yuan and is uh, to anyone that doesn't know? Who? Uh, the oh, word Yuan, yes. Oh, the word Yuan. Yuan, to me, to my parents, to regular Cambodians, you and before the Khmer Rouge even, you know, used that word, meant Vietnamese mm-hmm. because we call Chinese Jen, right? Uh-huh. Jen, and then, um, I don't know, it's subject to research. Um, I don't know, Jen could be from a Chinese person that they um, interacted way in ancient time, um, whose last name or whose name was Jen. So every time you see a Chinese person, you call him Jen, and probably the same with Yuan, because Yuan is the name. If you look at Vietnamese or Chinese, there's the name Yuan, and that's, and I believe I read it somewhere that it was um, etched on a wall uh, describing the people from the Tonkin, Tonkin area as Yuan. So come to Khmer Rouge, I guess because we used the word Yuan to describe Vietnamese, and then the Khmer Rouge had to mess it for all of us by using it in a derogatory way, using yeah. it to um, denigrate, use it, to um as a racist um connotation in a um in a derogatory way and even now the un had Mm -hmm. defined this word in a new with a new definition whereas 
our um, our language expert um, he described what Yuan is in the dictionary that Yuan is a group of people from um, from Tonkin and from this from the south of Yunnan. I, I, I have to look that up. Um, it escapes but yeah, me. Yeah, but I, he yeah. definitely defined that as Vietnamese. There's no derogatory connotation towards that word. And he was so, my dad, in hearing that, he was so pissed off. And then I, I started to feed him the information based on, you know, these journalists, these, um, these people who are, you know, retelling the story, uh, writing about what happened in Cambodia and the, the description of the Khmer language of the people just not sitting well with him. Mm -hmm. So I said, so why don't you tell me what happened? And that's when he started to open up. And once he opened up, everything, it, it's like a weight lifted. Like I would not get him to stop talking about yeah. the past. Oh yeah. It just, and I, I, I think understand that. I noticed he, he looked better. He felt better because it's, it's like. You gave him space and you also I, did not judge him. Yeah, I just listen, whether it's in the car, he'll, you know, talk about it. And my mom, remember, she was repressing all these bad memories. And then she started to remember things. And then she would interject whenever my, whatever my dad doesn't remember, she'll mm. fill in. Mm. And, and, and that's when we were no longer strangers. We were no, we were no longer miscommunicating. We were actually communicating, and we were beginning to understand each other. And that's how our relationship mm. improved. It was like, how old was I? I was in my twenties. Yeah, uh, I was twenty four, twenty five. That's when our relationship had blossomed to what you now see today. Yeah, which I see today now. It's like the last couple <laughs> years I've known you. You've taken out your parents to dinner. And I mean, they're just like nonchalantly chomping on their uh, buffet <laughs> that, you, that you take them to. And I think it's so cute. It's so adorable <laughs> to see both of your elderly parents just really enjoying their time with you and you spoiling them silly with food. And um, But no, I, I think know. It, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful to watch because oftentimes... Um, as I prefaced in in several of the episodes that I've talked with guests, is that 1975 is a critical anniversary because it is 45 years later now. And uh, 45 years ago, the adult survivors who were at least 20 years old, for example, are 65 years old. And mm -hmm. that also tells you that time is also running out. And what you did was getting their stories to not just share about what had happened to them, but to also to understand your history, to understand your parents' struggles as parents to you, you know, getting a frame of reference as to uh, what happened and how this has conditioned them in their parenting, in their way of trying to adjust into a foreign land that um, 
that they have no knowledge about and and the trauma of their past that would keep revisiting itself uh, at random moments, right? So it starts to make sense. Uh, I, I often feel concerned for those who have not opened up that dialogue with their parents mm -hmm. about what had mm -hmm. happened because it's not an easy thing to just ask a parent to do is, hey, can you tell me what happened during the Khmer Rouge at some random moment? As I have said, it takes that trust, this understanding. You you got to create the space to be able to hear them because parents have a hard time sharing that information because it does feel overwhelming to put that onto their children's shoulder, especially well, I, if they don't, under, if, especially if they have not experienced what um, what that was like, right? I feel like I kind of manipulated my dad into <laughs> opening up. <laughs> Really? Like, you did you hear what they say? About? But you know what? The, but the thing is that well, here's the thing. Here's a caveat here. A lot of love the stories that were written by journalists, and not not to discredit journalists. I think they're very critical um, to to uh, educating how what the history was going, what the history was like um, during those current events. But they don't have the insight, knowledge. They don't have the language skills or the uh the personal firsthand experience of that trauma and and not to diminish journalists but we've also seen stories being written by them and you know researchers who are not uh, from the area who don't understand the dynamics and the yeah. personal uh relationships that were going on um in cambodia and hearing the witnesses, hearing those who have had experienced it, we're starting to hear more of those stories emerge. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, to have your dad even tell it to you, just you giving him the space to do that. Um, and for your mom, even though she may not be completely um, as willingly transparent, but it takes time. And sometimes they will share and sometimes they'll stay in silence. And it's just a matter of, you know, really taking that time and building that relationship with them to understand um, what had happened and how we can use their history to understand ourselves and what we can do as people in terms of in terms of expanding our compassion, our empathy towards other folks and also in the relationships that we have with um, our own children or younger generations who are looking to us for guidance, right? And we're at the point in our lives that we are uh, literally the torch bearers of our family's legacy and passing that history on to younger folks and as part of our uh, collective history, right? So yeah, I think it's, I think what you did um, is very important because it also would lead you to writing uh, your first, uh, two novels. I know that you wrote The Governor's Daughter um, several years ago. Uh, it's a creative uh, historical fiction book. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you would be able to share a little bit about writing that book and then The Immortal Seeds, which you would write um, uh, soon afterwards. No, actually, The Immortal Seeds was first. Oh, The Immortal Seeds was first. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's my, um, remember, uh, how I manipulated my dad to tell his side of the story, and that turned was it into that food? book. Was it was it through a seat? Was it through a <laughs> of, buffet? Of course, it's through food. 
it's through taking it, taking him to Cambodia, taking him to wherever his relatives are. It's not a bad um, bribe. It, That's not a bad bribe if you think about it. So don't don't feel yeah, too bad. Yeah, um, it's it's through that. And once he got going, he would never stop. And he, sometimes he would talk about the same event over and over and over. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. But I said, so I said, Dad, that's enough. I got a book out of it. So we're good. <laughs> oh, and what did your dad say when you had um, the Immortal Seeds? Uh, was he able to read uh, what you wrote? Um, my, okay, so here's the thing. Um, yeah. my, my mom and dad, they don't read anymore. I try to get them to read. My dad, um, he learned back in the days back in Cambodia, uh, that's how he was able to apply for sponsorship. And he mm -hmm. actually um, was hired by other refugees to write sponsorship letters to um, other countries because he knew English because uh, he, he learned English. I, uh, I hear the story time about how his father said, what are you learning English for to talk to a cow? Woo. <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> but... You know, my, 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 my dad tells me about his father. He, he's a, based on what my dad um, tells me about him, he's, he's a very lovable person and too, too bad. Um, he passed away uh, just when, I guess, before the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia. Mm. He was starved to death and he died next to his mom and his brother. And they buried them. Uh, my my father's um, brother buried them in one place. Mm. But anyway, uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> no, I was <laughs> talking about the um, um, your two books because you you would you would start to write them, and then um, and then you know going further, uh, what was the experience like in creating uh these books and sharing them with uh with the Khmer community and with other communities through your literary work so i was wondering what that experience has been like as a writer because i know that you also work uh full-time for a legal firm so you also have to balance that out and and oftentimes you know what being a writer it's hard to make a sustainable living so to you know to do to devote that much time to writing a book and then you know, releasing it, and then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're in demand to have uh, conversations about your own experiences and and also promoting uh, your book. So I think what I would like to ask is, uh, what was that experience like in sharing that with the Kamai community and with other uh, communities as you um, as you were promoting uh, the Governor's Daughter, and then um, or before that, Immortal Seeds, and then Governor's Daughter. When I wrote um, my family's memoir, it's just more for, I, I guess, for my family. And then if it so happened to sell and it's, if it so happened that other people pick up on it, I, I, I wanted them to see the story through uh, my parents' eyes. And then um, after that, I, I thought, hey, um, I wasn't really a writer, but I, I, I worked so hard on it. I, I did my best and I consulted um, 
actual writers and editors to help me out with that one. And then, you know, after the research, the process of writing, doing research, doing interviews, and, and things like that, that's when it, you know, dawned on me that, hey, you know what? I kind of like doing this. Maybe I can write something else. Now that I got my family um, history out of the way, I can actually write what I like. Because mm-hmm. back to my time being alone in uptown Chicago, being a loner, my mind was always in another world in fantasy land thinking how I was a hero in my own world while I was being abused and you know mentally tortured um, in this world Mm. Uh, so I would think of my own um, world um, using it my imagination so I thought maybe I should you know write something else and I love uh I love murder mystery. I thought I would start out with murder mystery. Um, and that's when I, when I was writing, actually, when I was writing, um, a, a, um, a science fiction novel, which I'm still working on. I was, my mind was diverted to something else to to this to the governor's governor's daughter i originally wanted to i i fell in love with the 20s i like the 20s and you know not a lot of um memories or history during that time during french colonialism not a lot of um stories come there are history books about during that time but there's not you know there's no novels there's no stories so I thought hey I love murder mystery and I also love history why don't I put that two together and write about write historical fiction Mm -hmm. murder mystery that's when I did research during that time period making sure that I get the history right, making sure that during that time there was a train. Come to find out there wasn't a train <laughs> during that time. Um, there were boats, steamboats and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I have to make sure that I get the um, the the technology as well as the culture mm-hmm. and history um, correctly so that we have this, we have this book, out. Not, not just about, I, I know people are sick and tired, um, especially with today's gen- generation, um, they're very fatigued. They're, they're sick and tired of reading about the Khmer Rouge this and the Khmer Rouge yeah. that. I get yeah. it that people want to change the narrative but in order to change the narrative, each of us, you know, have to change um, within ourselves. And so I thought, hmm, why don't I write something else besides the Khmer Rouge? It, the Khmer Rouge, it happened. 
the history is there. You can never forget it. Um, the only thing we can do is change our views and behavior um, today what happened in the past we can't change it but yeah. we still have to remember it in order to learn from the past because of um of the way we treat each other because of our fear paranoia uh, our um, lack of education that's yeah. to help turn us into killing machines yeah. so um we can't change that but now i mean if you are suffering whether it's directly or indirectly from the Khmer Rouge. I know it, it, scar, it, it scarred us, all of us who were born in Cambodia, whether it's directly or indirectly. But now we, have, we live in peaceful time. We have sources to help us, help us change, help us heal. So take advantage of that. But mm -hmm. anyway, going back to my writing, I want to I want to be a paperback writer and I want to write murder mystery I want to write science fiction so after finishing the immortal seeds that's when I got started to work on a science fiction and that science fiction just uh, directed me to this murder mystery so I had to like I wrote that book in five months so that was how um, motivated I was to um, to contribute to writing although um, I know I'm not very good at it at the moment but I'm striving I'm struggling I'm learning and I want to improve I want to hone my writing skills mm. so that I can write a good story that mm. people enjoy reading and because of that book, I guess because of Own Savi and the uh, Cambodian Women Network, um, that's how. Shout out to that remember, wonderful group. Yeah, shout out to Camaray for yeah. starting that group. And Savi yeah. is like a sister to me. So also shout out to her for uh, for being so genuine and and wanting to uplift and promote other uh, Cambodian folks' uh, work, including yours. Yeah, I was actually a loner. I, I, I only have one best friend and I don't know, I didn't know anybody else. And mm -hmm. until they invited me into their circle yeah. uh, to talk about my writing, my writing process, little did I know that a lot of them have their own stories to tell mm -hmm. and they want to learn the process of writing a book and getting a book published. And I started out with um, Ronnie because Ronnie has already has a story and she wrote her outline and all that. And she just actually needs to sit down and write. So, and there were other women who contacted me personally about, you know, going into writing and I helped them with, with whatever I can and based on my experience it, it's it, it's hard especially when you have a full-time job and thank god I don't have children and I'm not married so mm -hmm. I use that free time 
to work on my writing, to work on my research, and to go back to school so that I can get, um, so I can learn um, the techniques, so I can learn um, the process of writing, the structure, and how to tell a good story. Basically, how to write. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. I absolutely think it's wonderful and that you are inspiring folks uh, within our community, especially among Khmer women, uh, to tell their stories. And um, I have seen that with people in, our, in the storytelling scene uh, that my good friend Ada Cheng has uh, done and I brought her into the Cambodian Museum. And we've had some Cambodian women that we just mentioned that are telling their stories and they're sharing it for the first time. And it also goes to show you that the, um, as much as the Khmer Rouge stands as the frame of reference of mm-hmm. our struggles, it also shows you how, yes, there is some connection. There is a lot of parallels to the journey to America or the journey to elsewhere, but it's so nonlinear. There's mm-hmm. so many different intersections at play. There's so many different uh, dynamics within families that are different from another, from a class, gender, um, and um, what have you. So when you've gone to other communities, um, what was your experience like when you have people reading your book, you know, buying your book and, you know, what what the feedback has been like from not just the Khmer American communities, but also with other communities, um, as you've been, you know, doing your promotion of these two books. My um, first interaction was with um, my um, co-workers book club. They invited me to talk about the immortal seeds. They knew nothing about Cambodia. They knew nothing about the history. So it was shocking for them to read my story and they um, appreciated how my dad was like this, this hero, this clever man who saved his family from, from starvation, from execution. Mm -hmm. So they saw him as a hero. because that book was uh, written about him. And of course, he's the hero in the book. And mm-hmm. that, so with that, um, I'm introduced with that group, I was introducing them to Cambodia, Cambodia and Cambodian people, because not a lot of people knew about Cambodia. No. But if, for those who knew about Cambodia, the, the, the only thing, uh, I guess, what is synonymous with Cambodia and her people is the Khmer Rouge, Bobot, killing fields, you know, bombings and all that. That's what they associate with Cambodia. Yeah. And then with the um, Cambodian community, they when I interacted with um, these Cambodian young women and they didn't read my, um, my immortal seeds book, they read the governor's daughter, which is a murder mystery. And part of that meeting was more so for them to express themselves 
and for them to learn this process of telling stories because they all have very engaging stories, very personal stories to tell. And some of them are not ready and some of them are, but would like to know how to go about doing it. Mm. So that's where I come in. And um, the hardest thing is to actually sit and write. So if someone has a manuscript, I mean, when I have time, I can look it over and I can guide people to, you know, seek to seek um, an editor or I can point out, okay, you need to work on this. You need to elaborate. Um, how do you want to tell the story? What's, what is your purpose of telling the story? I would ask them like, mm -hmm. who, who is your audience? You know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And it mostly to encourage them to actually write, you know, the hardest thing, even you yourself know, the hardest thing is to sit and write and tell yes. that story, to get that story out of your mind and into that paper or computer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I got to say, like, you have visited Cambodia a few times and you've had your books in, on display at the Phnom Penh Airport. And you've yeah. had it on display in local bookstores uh, in Cambodia, but also in other local bookstores around here. And how does that feel uh, when you start seeing your books on display, especially in Cambodia? It has to feel very surreal for you. Oh, it was great. I was so excited. And I, yeah, because you're my Facebook friend. Um, you notice that I post like I get so excited when people go to Cambodia and take a snapshot of my um, book or books yeah. for me. It's it's so exciting. I'm I know I'm not a best-selling author. It doesn't I know, matter though, but, it but it's just matter, to though. have it. Well, number one, I got excited when I finished the manuscript. I'm like yay! And now the second part is to revise the manuscript and mm -hmm. it took me a long time to revise it and then to get an editor to revise it and then have to hire another editor and then um, yeah. ask a friend or, or people who are willing to read and give you um, their feedback. So it's, it's a long process um, and my excitements are in three stages. The first stage is to get a draft done. I'm like, yay, I got a draft. And then to revise it, revise it, revise it until I'm satisfied with it. And then to pass it off to an editor and another editor. Just And then finally having someone, a friend or a, I had a journalist uh, read my um the, the immortal seeds and he gave me some good feedback so i was satisfied with it published it and like i don't want to change anymore i'm i'm done with it and then it's time yeah. to move on to the next one and go through the same process and the excitement is always when you have the product in your hand Absolutely. and then on display it's more <laughs> exciting on display and then i would probably be over the moon if i could sell like ten thousand copies but 
you know, I think at the end of the day, it's not a matter of how much you sell, but it's also the fact that it's in people's hands. People mm-hmm. are taking the time to read your book. When I interviewed Tanha Lai, she was like, she told me something um, during the interview. She said, you know what? I did not go in writing to sell a million copies. Yeah, it's sold well mm-hmm. in China, so well in other countries. It's being taught in, in schools. I'm thankful. But the thing is, let it be a secret. Uh, that's what she told me and um during the podcast she was like but isn't that what all successful um writers say like oh that i didn't intend this to be well i think you want to do it for the right reasons obviously like right are you doing it to get sales or are you doing it because there's something that you have to say and you hope that other people will get an idea of what you're trying to say and hope that you compel them to think about their own stories or compel them to take action, right? And, and to move them in a way that brings impact. So I, I think there's, there are writers that, you know, focus on that, I, I believe. Um, so yeah, I, I, think that, I think it's great if you can have that as a goal, but I think at the end of the day, it's about the impact that your book has. And I see what you've already done so far in sharing your family's journey, but also writing uh, writing a writing a book that presents Cambodia in a different manner, or giving an offering a different perspective um, through your own creative lens. So, you are currently working to help publish other Khmer American writers, and I was wondering if you can share what you're aiming to do and what does that mean to you. Oh, with my publishing company. Yes. I so this is what happened. Um, you know, part of um, one of the reasons why I got into writing and why um, I created this publishing company um, called Golden Boat Press is because my dad told me the story where he and other guys um, were, were forced at gunpoint to destroy these temples to destroy um, pagodas, to destroy books. I remember how passionate or how um, contrite he was when he told me that he, when he threw the books, these nice bound books Mm. um, into the fire, like how... It's like a sacred thing. You, you, you basically, you're, you know, the the Khmer Rouge is destroying knowledge, destroying everything, the the Cambodian past civilizations. Um, um, So all these books from various civilizations are Mm. being destroyed in this, you know, short period. So he wished that he could bury these books. he he felt so guilty about burning these books. Mm. So I thought, you know, maybe create my own publishing company. And at the same time that I'm writing my stories, what I want, you know, Maya Angelou, I think it was Maya Angelou who said something about, um, if you don't see a story um, that's being told, uh, if you don't see a story um, that you want to read, go write yourself. Mm-hmm. And 
that is basically what I'm doing. I don't see these stories about Cambodia um, that represents our history, that represents our culture. Um, why don't I write these books? So that's number one. And the second thing was out of my father's guilt as is to, you know, to ease his guilt about what happened. I wanted to create a publishing company, not only hoping to uh, give other artists a chance to write, whether it's history, essays, memoirs, um, fiction, nonfiction, science fiction. I want to be able to create this space for them to turn in their work to get published by my company and not only just publishing my own um, books, but other people's books as well. So hopefully, and in that process, I want to be able to research and translate lost Arts, lost novels, lost um, knowledge from our past, from the Cambodian past. So basically, my company is like a portal to another world, another place for. Um, for artists. Mm. That's beautiful. And I think it's just amazing <laughs> that you're continuing to not only uplift yourself as a writer, but to really uh, give platform to other up and coming uh, new writers, especially of the Southeast Asian diaspora. Um, so what advice would you have to someone, uh, especially in the Asian Pacific Islander community, uh, and even more specific with the Khmer uh, community, what advice do you have for them when they are interested in getting their first book published? What we well, that depends on um, what their experience is. You know, I I see people who don't know anything about writing and would come to me like. Uh, that is an education. First of all, you need to know how to form sentences. I mean, in terms of st structure, um, I, I mean, I don't have time because I, I, I work full time and I work long hours and whatever time I have on the train lunchtime I use those times to do my own research do my own writing and if I, I can't I can't help people who don't know how to write or form sentences you know what I mean you have to be able to have that that education already right I can only help people who have finished their transcript and you know need guidance need me to if they need me to look at it and tell them okay is this a publishable story or publishable work i can help them to 
you know, brush um, to, to clean up or direct them on how to tell story or um, having a good structure or having the plot. But in terms of prose, in terms of um, anything remed remedial, <laughs> they have to go to school for that. You know what yeah. I mean? Because yeah, exactly. time is precious and yeah. I, 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 that's, that's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, I remember this one when, when after I spoke at the 40th anniversary of the Cambodian Association, mm -hmm. she came to me. Um, she asked me about my writing. She was so interested. She wants to tell her story. And I said, oh, okay. Um, have, you, have you written the story? She said, yes. So she gave me her writing and it was in a diary type. And it was like a little girl's diary. Um, yeah. It was hard. It was hard. Um, I tried. I tried my best to put it together. I corrected her sentences. I said, oh my God, I don't have time for this. It's basically me rewriting her story. Right. So, right. so I, I think you need you know, to go either hire a ghostwriter to write your story or you know, learn the process of writing, learn how to form sentences, learn grammar, you know, the basic stuff. And learn to really tell a story, I mean, in general. I mean, that it's, it's hard to teach passion and mm -hmm. drive and the commitment because writing is an endurance. It, it's a lot. I mean, I've, I've written things before, but not in a, in a book or in a, I've done it more in a journalism sense. And I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes writing really feels like a, like a, gift and a curse to have because mm -hmm. it's so enduring it's so uh exhausting and you don't get paid very well for uh for writing i mean although in some professions you can but it is a lot of labor and a lot of intense um editing uh going back and forth and having to deal with the patients having to have the patience to go through that whole process of writing mm -hmm. and editing and going back to the drawing board so um but no i do think that that um what you've done so far as a writer and also learning how to give a platform to those that want who want to write i think is very important and i hope that uh, more people start to take writing their own stories very seriously especially within our own communities as we are in need to tell our own stories under our own agency um, so with that said what are your goals for this year and where can we follow your work? Oh, you can go to my website, simbatmia.com. You'll see I not only write um, my own stories, I read other people's stories a lot. And then I do reviews for the ones that I really like and I post them on my um, um, website. And so you can follow me on Instagram too, or Twitter or Facebook to see what I'm up to. Um, my next writing, I'm hoping to finish this year. 
is my rom-com, which I'm very excited about. That's awesome. I mean, like, I'm hoping that it would be another crazy rich Asian phenomenon. <laughs> but a girl can dream. I low-key uh, want to be in your book so bad because I think it would be quite a character. But, you know, I'm not going to interfere with the creative process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I can't wait for that to be done. Um, I just need to wrap it up. And then I can go back to my science fiction, which, like, this is funny. I started out writing a science fiction, and it got divided into, like, my mind. It took it um, led me to other books. Like I have two murder mystery um, outlined already, but which I haven't written yet because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm busy with work and sometimes, you know, answering questions um, of other people who wanted to become uh, writers. And then, yeah my goal is to finish writing this um, rom-com and because the, the process is very long and tedious so after writing it'll be revising 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 until i'm satisfied and then give it to an editor find a good editor mm. and then possibly find another editor to check that editor's edits and then find a test reader or test readers. Mm. Yep. All right. Sounds awesome. And uh, one last question. And if you were to tell your 16-year-old self now, what would you tell her? My 16-year-old self, I was, what? I'm trying to remember it. Wow. What was I like when I was 16? 16, confused, didn't get along with a lot of people and just basically be by myself. Um, oh yeah, um, about other people, you know, destroying um, your confidence. Because mm -hmm. I wasn't in, an insecure person until somebody said something to me like how I was not qualified to do this or that how I someone when I applied to college I wanted to go to Loyola mm. she said to me oh, you're not qualified to go to Loyola mm. and uh, the joke is on her because I graduated from Loyola. Snap, snap, snap. <laughs> so. You told her. <laughs> I hope she knows it. I hope she knows that you uh, proved it wrong. I would have loved uh, to just came back be like, hey, by the way. You know, you know, funny story. She friended me on Facebook. And then after, yeah, and then after like a few months, she unfriended me. Ah, uh, someone's like a, someone's See, got a hater. That's the thing about, so I, what I would tell my 16 year old self is that, um, you know, kids our age, we're all insecure and some, some, some people, their insecurity manifested in a cruel way while other like me, 
insecurity um, manifested in a quiet way. But whatever the case, don't let anybody, don't, you know, don't take anybody's um, negativities. Just focus on yourself and don't be um, bitter about what you, well, what they said about you. Just, just keep on doing what you need to do and, you know, hang out with um, people with like minds or people who can uh, um, elevate you and not put you down. Thank you so much for talking to me. I know that we've exhausted a lot of different topics in your journey. Um, we talk about um, your experiences um, surviving as a child during the Khmer Rouge in, in the uh, camps, but also your journey living in the Uptown Chicago neighborhood, which I'm so glad that you brought up because Uptown Chicago, even though I wasn't from there, I had spent a lot of time as a kid during the weekend. So um, talking about the neighborhood is um, something that is very meaningful to a lot of folks who have lived in that community, uh, but also sharing your, of your own uh, your own journey to understand your parents' history and, um, and having the compassion to understand their struggles and to work at bettering your relationship with them after dealing with so much toxicity and trauma from, uh, from them, specifically with your dad, and then talking about your journey as a writer and what you're doing to uh, create space to have other people share their writings with you. So I wanna say thank you so much. I'm so blessed to have known you as a friend and as a person who continues to inspire so many of us, including myself. And really Aww. thanking you for taking the time to be here, sharing your journey with me and with uh, folks that I hope they're listening to this. And uh, I hope that uh, you do so much more in the coming years. I'll be watching you and uh, keeping an eye on you. And, and I'll be watching you. <laughs> Hopefully not getting into trouble. So, you know, that's, that's all I got to make sure I uh, have to do is stay out of trouble. Um, yeah. But no, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart, uh, Sambat, and best of luck to you. And thank you for having me. Not thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you. And I, and I hope you um, put all your... Um, writing turn your writing into all your your snippets your vignettes into this manuscript um i sure I, hope I, so yeah i sure I, hope, I hope so that's gonna be a goal before i'm done is that to have something have a culmination of short stories and put it out there but that would be a goal of mine i'm gonna hold myself to that okay yeah all right get, well, thank you get so going much. with your writing <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Mm -hmm.